0: Hello and welcome back to the Prince's Podcast. We are broadcasting from Florence and I'm here with our political scientist, Lewis Miller. Lewis, say hello to the listener. Hello to the listener. Okay, now, um, this is episode four, chapter four. Lewis, why? Chapter four is just a case study, isn't it? And it's got a very long title. Yeah. it it out.
1: There's a few case studies. Uh, chapter 4 is called Why the Kingdom of Darius Usurped by Alexander Did Not Rebel Against Its Successor After
0: Alexander Was Dead. That's quite specific, isn't it? Why, why have we gone so into such a specific example for the chapter title?
1: Uh, because we're now looking into, well, we've conquered the territory, or we're trying to conquer and we're talking about the different types of government there are and uh, what's easier to rule and what's harder to rule and he's beginning to look at different types of regime that exist and generalize from them
0: yeah and at the moment um you're, you're playing a video game where you're trying to um take over britain yes with these principles and you set up you set me up account on the game and i'm in Italy, and i'm the duke of ferrara who we mentioned last week right? yeah exactly yeah and uh, you you've encouraged me to invade bologna which i successfully achieved and the game is set in the set a few hundred years before yeah it's um, called
1: Crusader Kings 2 Crusader people. Kings 2 yeah. yeah
0: would you recommend it um if
1: you have a lot of time to put into a game then yeah probably but it's a uh... Yeah, it's
0: pretty narrative. How are you doing? Because I want to update listeners on your progress in the game. Because My I, progress. Th- I think it's very connected to this. Because in this game, it's very complicated. It's not just fighting and it's killing people. Um, it's very political. It's about how you treat other people and how you use resources.
1: Yeah, the stuff from later on in Machiavelli is quite useful. Don't get hated. But yeah. uh, rule with fear and make sure you have more power than all the people underneath you. So you. I think it's and- very
0: important that we update the listeners on your progress and success in well, this video game. Well, it will be
1: very, very slow because I never have any time to play okay, it. But, uh, yeah,
0: it, it would undermine us if you were bad at it.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, I, I'm not the best at it, but um, it's mainly because it's a very, very difficult game, but I like to imagine I'm quite good at it.
0: Okay, so I'm down in Italy, and I've um, yeah. invaded Bologna from mm. uh, Ferrara, is it Ferrara, Ferrara? Yeah, yeah. Duke Ferrara, and I call myself Nicola, and mm. um, you, meanwhile, are up in... Britannia, mm-hmm. and you are moving down slowly and steadily through Britain, and mm. you're, you've reached the Humber, and you're moving down from Scotland because you're Scottish, Yeah, of course. but you've lost Cumbria.
1: I lost Cumbria because someone inherited it, yeah. Which is
0: an embarrassing stain on the map of your empire.
1: Yeah, well, uh, the thing is, you can't uh, don't conquer what you
0: can't hold, is uh, a good hold. principle. And that is yeah. something we will probably come back to, but for now, we're going to jump into this chapter. But before I start, I'll say what I say every week. Don't worry if you didn't listen to the first three episodes because The Prince by Nicola Machiavelli is not a linear book. It is fairly applicable advice all the way through, isn't it Lewis? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for <laughs> Thank you for adding to that. Um, so don't worry if you haven't listened to the first three. You um, can if you want, they're there. Um, don't worry about next week. That's there too if you want it. Mm-hmm. But right now, right here, we are doing chapter four. Lewis, tell me about Chapter 4.
1: Well, I like Chapter 4 as it's very political science in some regards. Um, but yeah, we'll go through this. So again, just to remember, why the kingdom of Darius, usurped by Alexander the Great, that is, not just Alexander, any old one, did not rebel against his successors after Alexander was dead. Just a little bit of context as who he was. He was a conqueror of Greece, and then he moved, and he conquered from Egypt to Iran, which is where Darius was... Um, the the ruler and um, and yeah his his um, empire collapsed. The little famous story about Alexander the Great, according to legend, uh, Octavian, who became Augustus, went to visit his uh, grave, and um, he broke his nose off by accident, apparently. And so that's a little famous story to do with that. What do, what do you that. mean his nose? I don't know. For some reason, he broke his nose. Wait, um, wait.
0: Not, the, not the, the the skeleton's nose. Yeah, yeah, he was mummified, the, the, apparently. The body? Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, skeletons don't have noses. But Some time ago I read oh, right. this,
0: but I'm pretty sure that happened, yeah. Okay, that might not be true. I hope it is. It's in
1: it's in Augustus' uh, biography, which I recommend. Where is dead Alexander? Well, we don't know. He's uh, lost in oh, time. Oh, right, okay. Uh, but energy, if you are an archaeologist or treasure hunter, if you find it, please let us know. Please write to us first. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we'll get into the chapter, though. Now we've considered how difficult it is to hold a territory. We can now look at how um, to hold a newly conquered territory. We can look at how difficult it is to conquer particular territories and how to rule them successfully. And so I think this is a really good chapter for political scientists. This is a nice, re- clear, clear research question. That is, there is a nice, clear thing to say what is it we're trying to work out here. Uh, and there's a couple of what we call uh, independent variables. That is, there are a couple of things that cause it to be more easy or more difficult for whatever to occur, it makes it more likely or less likely. So, if you spot them as you're going through, well done, consider a career uh, in disappointment. So, uh, all monarchies which we have any rock record, according to Machiavelli, were ruled in two manners. The first manor was a prince and his servants as he says, whom he vouchsafes out of mere grace to constitute his ministers and admits of their assistance in the government of his kingdoms. And that means a prince who rules by those he has appointed and who supports him as ministers. So it's like a cabinet almost. And the second one is a prince and his barons who were persons advanced to that quality, not by favour or concession of the prince, but by ancientness and nobility of their extraction. And that means a prince who has an already existing nobility, and he has to choose them. So they have their own little fiefdoms below him. And uh, a point could be made here that Prime Ministers might actually have less power over an appointment than you might think at first. The Prime Minister in the UK is supposed to be able to pick his ministers. But some individuals have to be kept in the um, the Cabinet because they're quite powerful. And he wants to keep them... Um, he wants to keep them... Uh, in the cabinet and bind them to cabinet responsibility, that is, they have to stick to government policy. There's a famous phrase which says it's better to be inside the the tent pissing out than have them outside the tent pissing in. Um, And so in this sense, both of these concepts can be kind of abstracted from rather than ruling a kingdom, we're talking about um, ruling a party or whatever. So if you appoint your own ministers, you have more absolute power as everyone acknowledges your superiority. The act in the capacity of a minister, and not in the capacity of a baron. In Turkey, apparently this was the case, where barons could be easily appointed and dismissed by the leader. But in France, the great lords limited the king's power because they inherited those positions. As a result, Machiavelli says that the Turkish state was harder to conquer, but easier to maintain. It's hard to conquer because there are a few peop- there are few people to invite you in, as we were talking about last time um, to rule on their behalf, or, and, um, so there's nobody to invite you in. They can be fired by the person in charge. As they're all under control of their master, they're harder to corrupt, and so are all equally, uh, under control. When talking the- about what we might currently refer to as a fifth column. Yes, it's, um, there's nobody to take advantage of, and, yeah, exactly. Um, so once the army's beaten, there's no one left to subdue apart from the remaining family, which, if you were paying attention last time, you have to remember to kill them all. So once you've done that, then there's no problem. Um, but if you're the French king, or a would-be conqueror, you can uh, use the existing barons, uh, barons to get a foothold uh, uh, to aid your conquest, but once you hold this territory, it's more difficult to hold than the conqueror of Turkey, as you're left with these legitimate powers beneath you who can seize upon any dissent and you'll never manage to please them and you'll never manage to kill them all. So Darius held a territory much like that of the Turks and Alexander found that he was a very strong leader and so had to take him out. Having conquered it with Darius dying, the Persian Empire became Alexander's. It was easily held. But many kingdoms are not like the Turk and the Persians. For the Romans, they had to conquer France, Spain and Greece which had little sub-polities underneath them. So when these were old, when these were old, and everyone forgot about their old allegiances, they grew secure, and um, there was nothing less to left there to worry about. So they could begin to appoint them. So they moved from one system to the other. So, what would I say the dependent variable is? That is, what are, what are we studying? I would say that this is the ease in which one conquers and holds a particular kingdom. And the independent variables, that is, what makes it hard or difficult. The first one's the constitution does the kingdom give you the power of appointment or not second one the power of your sub-vassalities that is of the barons are there lots of them with lots of power uh, or are there you know as are they diffuse the third one is the age of the rulers um, that is those barons are their families established do they have their own legitimacy like we were talking about in chapter 2 so he says the mechanism that is How this all works together. It's easier to to conquer a divided kingdom with powerful sub-barons, but it's harder to rule them. And the same words vice versa. Harder to conquer a united one, but easier to rule it. So I would ask the question, is it easier to become the president of the US or the prime minister
0: in the UK? And is it easier to rule the UK or the USA? So can you qualify that by defining what you see as the main difference between the American president and the British prime minister?
1: So, the Prime Minister has Parliament and he has his Cabinet. He can appoint his Cabinet and he has a party which he doesn't appoint, but he commands a majority
0: in Parliament so he can pass a lot more legislation a lot more easily. Now, whereas um, Barack Obama is filibustered on an almost weekly basis by a hostile Senate and Congress, it's how, how rare would you say was it that um, a British Prime Minister couldn't get something done? It's very rare. It happened last ancient. year and a couple of years before. It doesn't. Be, would you say once a year, twice a year? So years ago,
1: I studied this statistic and something like I remember them saying that it, it was well over a hundred pieces of legislation a year. If I want to be conservative in my
0: guess, but in the US, it's significantly lower. Now that 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 is sort of an aberration at the moment because we have a particularly in historical context, we have a particularly his, um, hostile. Um, Senate and Congress in America, particularly hostile to the executive branch of America. On top of that, uh, for pretty much all his time in office, Obama's had a, um, a right-wing Supreme Court, um, hasn't he? So, mm-hmm. the so so for the sake of this, we're going to say that um, the David Cameron, the British Prime Minister, um, even even under coalition, a few uh, a, a year or so ago is in a more far more powerful and slightly more um, autocratic position than the president who has to compromise for almost everything he has to do. Yes. So you would say that it is definitely much easier to run Britain
1: mm-hmm.
0: and much harder to run America. America has a governability yeah. crisis at the moment. So
1: what's interesting is when you talk about whether it's easier or harder to become the leader, Yeah. Uh, the two systems work completely different there. Mm. Uh, in uh, depending on the party in the UK, there's easy parties to understand. Conservatives and Lib Dems are quite easy to understand. You just take a ballot, members. The Labour has these. Um, they've had three different systems over the year. Corbyn was elected on the most recent, which is like a ballot, and it has supporters rather than just members. So you have to win over lots of people you didn't have to win over before.
0: Okay, so for American listeners, and I know we have American listeners because they've written to me. Um, in for those who might not know or may have forgotten. Uh, Last year, for the first time, the Labour Party had a new rule, which meant that anybody, anybody, pretty pretty much anybody, with a few exceptions, Mm -hmm. if they hadn't been involved in a different political party beforehand, could register as a supporter of the Labour Party for three pounds, which is about five American dollars, I think, compared to the uh, normal joining fee, which, uh, how how much does it cost to be a Labour Party member? About 40 quid? Uh, it depends how rich you are. Okay, so a lot. So mm. basically anybody can just jump in and vote. Mm-hmm. So
1: how would that affect your likelihood of becoming the leader of the party? And would that <laughs> affect your ability to govern in any way?
0: Yeah, yeah, because it means that you... Um, but, you know, again, it's not, it's not too unlike America in that way because in America um, there's a lot of pressure for the party that isn't governing at the moment from their base. Mm -hmm. who are partially insane um so i I suppose it means that it's hard to be forceful it's hard to have a decision to make a decision and stick to it because you have to convince hundreds of thousands of people
1: Mm -hmm.
0: if it's a you know if it's a big long drawn out thing or at least you have to consider the thoughts of those people that's what democracy is. Mm-hmm. So do you think Machiavelli's principle is applicable uh, for modern
1: party rulers? Even if it's...
0: Yeah, uh, but I feel like it's becoming less so because people don't people don't appreciate this, do they? People are mm-hmm. very... Especially in our, in our current age where a lot of people feel left behind by globalization and a perceived political class that is elite and detached from the general population... People wouldn't. People don't really appreciate the value of having the ability of a leader having the ability to make a decision and go with it. Yeah. In Britain, that might be a and in America, some extent as well. That that.
1: So we have a nice example from the Labour Party, actually. Who once you yeah. managed to get your little, well, what used to be like three different. Well, you'd have to get the MPs, you'd have to get the trade unions and the affiliated organisations, and all the members behind you. All three of them got a third of the vote, but. Once you got in charge, you have different varying control over the policy-making procedure. So you had what is famously referred to as Tony Blair. Well, not famously, but Tony Blair was associated with a very centralised system of decision-making. He generally had a lot of control from number 10. We'd make lots of policy centrally. And so people who support Jeremy Corbyn were very dissatisfied with this because they go, you know, we'd knock doors, we're involved with the Labour Party, we go to all the events, we give you money, why do we have a stay-over policy? But um, So Jeremy Corbyn was elected on such a principle. Now, I'm yet to see how whether that system is fair or whatever. Well, there's lots to see as to where that's going. But if we create this sort of ideal type Jeremy Corbyn, and we have this ideal type Tony Blair, which both would be unfair to even to each, you could say that you could be on Jeremy Corbyn's side, where power, your leadership power should be whatever the members decide, or you can be like Blair, and you make decisions yourself as Prime Minister. Now, which system do you think is a fairer system? Or which one do you think is... Or what one do you think is better? Hmm.
0: Fair is difficult. I suppose... Um, you know what? People... It's a a, a very difficult question to answer. I think we have to appreciate how um, haunted we are by certain historic incidents and what they do to the preceding political generation. I'll take two examples. Let's take two of the worst, um, or at least what are perceived to be two of the worst foreign policy disasters in the last half century. I want to talk about Vietnam and Iraq. Now, in the case of Vietnam and Iraq, these started under... You just said yourself uh, the Blair government was a lot more um, centralized than um, anything we have now, really. And at the same time, George Bush had, um, sorry, not George Bush, but um, in America, yeah, at the time for Iraq, George Bush had power over Senate and Congress. Mm-hmm. Same is true in Vietnam. So we have these instances where you have a decisive leader mm-hmm. making a bad judgment mm-hmm. that instantly millions of people despise, okay? Mm-hmm and something that lingers for a long time and and i could talk about economics i could talk about the financial crisis as well but i think what those what those things have done vietnam or and iraq um if we if we look at the years after vietnam we had absolute political chaos especially on the left Mm -hmm. in america you remember it was a um democratic president who started it and you look at the uh the um the democratic convention in 68 the one that Vidal and Buckley were at Mm -hmm. absolute chaos, riots in the street, nothing could get done massive brawl in the convention centre which is why we have this uh, superdelegate system now that exercise of power which we and Nicola Machiavelli would say was very important the damage it did to the ability to control politics after that Mm -hmm. was astounding, It, it created chaos in America and similarly today we, we are so, as a, as a society, beyond politics, we are so stained by what happened. We're so haunted and scarred by what happened in 2003 in Iraq that we are almost unable to... I mean, we, we, look, at, yeah. we look at the situation in Syria and Iraq today and we think there's nothing we can do that could possibly make that better. Mm-hmm. And I think and that's, that is the main reason... Well, at least one of the main reasons why the Labour Party is what it is today—we have to remember—Jeremy Corbyn was um, was he the co-chair of the Stop the War movement? Mm-hmm. That's a lot of his base. They yes, these are the these are the people who were who who these are the people who were more upset than anyone else by uh, a, a righteous exercise of centralised power, which Machiavelli believes is what we need. But we you know, and and obviously society is very different back then, you know, 500 well, years ago. But luckily
1: for me this week, I don't have to defend bombing anyone or killing anyone or whatever, so that's
0: good. No, but what, but, you, um, what, you, what you must defend is the, um, the 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 idea that we must have these decisive leaders who can just do things.
1: Yeah, well, here's the thing. With the, one could argue with Corbyn, and you could argue the same in the Conservative Party, right? Which is that Power isn't evenly diffused between all members of the Labour Party. This is nonsense, right? The Labour Party within it has a very complex structure. It has a policy forum. It has the National Executive Committee. It has, and on those, sit particular bodies within the party who have differing degrees of power. And then you can follow the money. You have the, the trade unions who give a lot of money to the Labour Party. And so that gives them a lot of power over policy as well. So if the leader of the party loses that power over making their own policy, it might not be the average member on the street who is the one who gains as a result of that. Instead of having, you know, the collective Joe Bloggs making policy in the Labour Party, if you can if you keep the structure as it is, you could simply have those who have access to more power still making decisions but those who aren't as legitimately elected as the leader of the Labour Party. Because remember, that um, Jeremy Corbyn was elected, in part, to move away from these things. So that, there, was obviously, uh, there was obviously some discomfort at the old practices, and that should be
0: noted. That's an extremely important point. If we take that back over to America, the US Constitution... When it was written, it created a strong man in a cage. And that's mm-hmm. never been more evident than it is now with well, Barack yeah, Obama. Actually, that's and good. the power he doesn't have, the laws mm-hmm. that he can't write, the, the, the rules that actually happen, has been written by lobbyists and special interests. That's groups.
1: exactly the point I would say in the US context, that you have a very weak president. You also have, in the UK, you've got the party whip, right? If you watched the British House of Cards, you'd see that Francis Urquhart is our party whip. And his job is sorry. Uh, his job is to round up all the MPs and make sure they follow the line of the government. And if you don't, you can be punished. Uh, one way of punishing your members is to, for example, at the conference, book them a really crappy room. You can also get a really crappy room in office in Parliament, which is like a cupboard. So if they don't like you, they have their ways. Um, a long time ago, it used to be more violent, literally violent. Uh, but now they don't really do that so much, apparently. But uh, in the US, you didn't have that historically. You had very diffuse power. You had all these individuals, senators and congressmen from different places. Now, they weren't answering to the leaders. They weren't under any discipline, which sounds nice. But instead, they were answering to the people with money and with influence who could win them the next election, because that is one of... If you're a politician and you want to keep power and keep changing things according to what you think is right, you have to win the next election. So... In America, you had simply a more diffuse, what some could call democratic system on the face of it, but you had an undemocratic power of Wall Street, of corporations, of special interests, which were unfairly affecting the political system.
0: The efforts to foster trickle-down politics and more accountable politics closer to the people, are they futile? Um,
1: I, I think uh, a lot of... A lot of it is hard to believe. So, any election, they always say, we want to give you more power to the people, we want to move power further down. Um, and there's hardly a government I can think of off the top of my head in Britain, Scotland, or in the US who hasn't talked about empowering local government. But when they do get power, generally, it doesn't happen to the same extent. Devolution might be the big, um, the big, Um, exception to that rule but even then when you have devolution local government has been severely weakened in recent years and central government is making more decisions in Scotland so even then there's still a centralisation of power and that's because politicians want to make things happen according to what they think is right when you give power to other people it makes it harder to get things done and um, and so what ends up happening is you get some weird sort of mixed uh, message so I think For me personally, I always think that you should take things with a pinch of salt in politics. When someone says, I'm going to move power to local government, you need to take that with a pinch of salt and remember that these are people that want to get things done. Local government itself may not be the best way of putting forward a policy. There are advantages to having central power, otherwise we wouldn't have central power in the first place. But whether that power is legitimately used on your behalf... Um, requires some sort of civil society to hold to hold the government to account to make sure they're not using it in their own interests unfairly but they're do, using it according to some principles which we all accept are fair so democracy requires the citizens to hold their government to account and make sure that power is not arbitrarily moving up and moving down um, but again this is the problem there is no object. well I would say there is no real objective way to say uh, how much power should sit where that's ultimately a, a question that we have to answer through the democratic means
0: itself coming back to the um the chapter we're talking about today mm-hmm. what what are the what are the contemporary costs of having a gridlocked political system well the costs are if you look at some countries
1: um, in europe there is an article a chapter what's well, even a book by um, a person called Lightheart who talks about two different systems of government. One's consensus and one's majoritarian, right? In consensus one, you have to reach all these decisions that everyone gets behind. And in a majoritarian government, you have the centralised decision-maker. And this could almost be like the modern version of these two systems that Machiavelli is talking about, right? Consensus government, it's harder to rule, but it might actually be easier to take control if things are broken down. In a majoritarian one, it might be easier to... uh, No, it might be hard to see. It doesn't matter, right? This doesn't matter because we're talking about light power, right? So light power has these two systems and he talks about the advantages and disadvantages. And he says that majoritarian systems are better at crises. That if you're a prime minister and you have a a majority in parliament, that you're more likely to be able to pull it through a crisis. And the same can be true of business and whatnot, right? When you can force the other people into accepting it, And there's a crisis, you need to make a decision straight away, it gets done. Um, And, you know, the alternative one, consensus, is really hard to reach and it takes a long time. So when you have a crisis, you know, consensus systems just don't work. So I specialise in foreign policy in the 70s, partly, in the EU. So they had a consensus decision-making system. So they had two problems in 1979. The Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan and Iran had a revolution. In each case, they spend weeks, literally weeks, and they went to summits and all the media are waiting outside and the ministers come out and they go, ah, we didn't decide anything. Because consensus is a very, very difficult thing to reach. And when there's a crisis happening right now and you have to respond to it, it's incredibly difficult. But everyone wanted a consensus system because they didn't want their country being overruled by all these other member states of the EU. So, I mean, it's a balance. One leg part uh, ends up talking that he likes the... um, the consensus system a lot better. It's more democratic. It takes more people's uh, decisions into account, so it's fair. Um But there are advantages either way, and that's one of the things that his
0: study finds. Moving away from crisis and war and just to more mundane and general efforts in politics, if we take relatively, shall we say, um, maybe not unpopular, but uh, <laughs> not popular, international efforts like um, the European Union and the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, those are efforts to make to make international progress and in business less frustrating, aren't they? They're, they're, these are efforts to standardize regulation in countries. so you have to re- relatively similar, or the same regulation in Portugal as you do in Finland, which mm-hmm. makes it easier for, com- for companies' investment and in good ideas to spread through the continent quicker, and it irritates everybody.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, how, is, is Europe dysfunctional? Just because there are twenty-eight leaders all the time, and you have to, they have to say yes to everything.
1: Uh, we had a, a debate the other day, and uh, you asked me, "Is Europe dysfunctional?" Yes. Uh, to which my answer was, "All governments dysfunctional to some extent." I
0: asked you, "Was the European Union dysfunctional?" To which your answer was complicated.
1: Yeah. Well, it, I, again, like this. Well. If you're a political scientist, right, you, you first have to you've got a categorical variable. Like that's what you, that's what we're saying. We're saying it's dysfunctional or it's not. So you have to come up with some objective criteria to say what is a dysfunctional system and what isn't a dysfunctional system. Now the EU is slow. It takes a long time to reach decisions. It's poor at reacting to um, crises. It's very difficult to get anything through. And once something's there, it's very difficult to reform it. But it's like that for a reason. Uh, it's like that because the member states of the EU don't want to give up too much power. If if someone comes up with a decision, and uh, you know we have majority voting in an area, it's very very difficult. You know they don't want they don't want to be overruled. They don't want to be in the minority. So, even when there is a majority vote in the EU, there's what's called a qualified majority vote, which is higher than some countries have for changing their constitution. So that's still a very, very difficult thing. All that does is it forces one country in the corner to compromise if it need be, right? So, although it's a dysfunctional system in that regard, the advantage is that if you think that the member states of the EU shouldn't give up too much power to the EU, then that's what you get, you know? Uh, you can either you can centralise power in the EU, or you can have diffuse power. You can have the little barons from each country in the EU, um, and they can have their own power. And you know, one's easier to rule centrally; one's harder to rule. But that's the payoff you have to make. You know, um, this is in the literature called the trilemma, uh, where you, you have a payoff between central authority, democracy, and efficiency. Right? I don't necessarily agree with that concept, but. It's an interesting way of framing the question. So, but if you look at any country, name me one country where you meet someone and they go, yes, my country works so efficiently. Everything, the decisions are so democratic. My prime minister listens to everything we say and they manage the country perfectly. I have never in my life heard of such a thing as a well-run country because the democratic system isn't there to say, yes, the country's run so well. It is there for people who are dissatisfied to be able to change it if things are going badly, and nobody in a democracy is meant to be totally happy. The only country, the only system where someone can be totally happy is a dictatorship, and the only one who is ever totally happy is the dictator. Declare your
0: interest. My interest? Which one? Um, There's a reason why people might not think that you would be able to answer the dysfunctional question with a yes. What, because I study the EU or...? No, because you're running a you're running a Twitter page and website. Well, I, and I, look,
1: look, I think the EU is more efficient than having 28 national systems. Yes, yes, I think we're more influential and better in the EU, right?
0: Yes, I agree, but, but declare, I'm declare to, your interest because we're a I, podcast I have, an, I have an opinion, not yes. an
1: interest, and I'm allowed to have an opinion. Yes, I know, yeah. If I, academics I, I, didn't have I an opinion, opinion, opinion then, then opinion, we wouldn't do anything.
0: And I agree with your opinion. I just would like you to declare your interest for the sake of the podcast.
1: Okay, yeah, I, I, in my spare time, run a Twitter account called StayinEU. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't just declare your interest, plug it. Plug it? You want me to plug it? No, I don't need to plug it. It's doing perfectly well on its own.
0: It is doing well. How many followers have you got on Twitter? Uh, We're well over
1: 1,200 this weekend. And the account is? StayinEU. I hope you're all ardent Europhiles. If not, then that's fine, it's democracy.
0: Yes, and I don't run the Twitter page, so if people ask me... Whether the European Union is dysfunctional, I can say yes. Yes, which is a luxury of being a journalist and not being affiliated to anything.
1: We can have the argument about objectivity another time. That's that's a, <laughs> yeah, that's a fun should. one. We
0: should. We should. If yeah. you want to put me in the dock, that's probably quite an interesting way to do it. Yeah, definitely.
1: Okay, that was good then. Yeah.
0: That's good. You you happy with that?
1: Yeah. Uh, thank you for listening. And uh, yeah, I. So we have some way of giving
0: feedback. SoundCloud is one way. Uh, yeah, they could do, they probably wouldn't though I don't think people comment on SoundCloud I'm not really encouraging people to listen to it on SoundCloud anymore Now that we're on iTunes yeah, So if you're listening to this it? on SoundCloud You shouldn't really be doing that You should be. There's a, there'll be a button below this where it'll say buy on iTunes But don't well, ignore the word buy You can stream. tweet at us,
1: let's, let's use that okay. I am at Lou G. Miller L-E-W-G Miller yeah. Like the beer, M-I-L-L-E-R yeah. And you are?
0: That's oh, okay, just tweet at Lewis, it's fine Okay,
1: just tweet okay. at me yeah. then, that's fine, I get enough anyway
0: yeah, okay, it's done quite well. I feel like we should keep this small talk going a bit because um, one of the one of the feedback, some of the feedback that I did get was that it should be longer. We're so good, you know. But if you want, I could just leave the theme tune playing for another few minutes.
1: Yeah, I like you
0: to leave people wanting more. Wanting yeah. more, okay. Yeah, it's the best <laughs> right. way to be. Well, it's thirty six minutes last week, thirty three minutes and a bit this week. So yeah, yeah, I'll just leave efficient. the theme tune playing for ages. Okay, yeah, longer. yeah. It's a good tune. It right. is, and it's made by my cousin. Conrad Kira, who is an artist, and you should look him up if you like the theme tune. Yes. I like it. Okay, Okay. yeah. What do you want to do now? I guess Call of Duty is the standard. We're not getting paid any money by Activision for saying that, but... I have a Wii U, and that's
1: the only decent game I have on it here. It's
0: not the only decent game. Well, yeah, okay. But anyway, right. All right. Bye, everybody. Thank People you for flip. listening. We really appreciate you clicking on us. Yes, loads, loads of stuff you could be clicking on. A lot of it's better than this, but you clicked on us, and we appreciate that. We love yes. you. Thank,
1: thank you, you very much.
0: Bye.